the word of the Lord. It's written a long time ago, but it was written for you today. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests hearts. An evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. And the glory of children is their father's. Fine speech is not becoming to a fool. Still less is false speech to a prince. A bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion. The cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. Whoever loves transgression, loves strife, he who makes his door high seeks destruction. A man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. 
To impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is lovely, for you are lovely. We ask now that your spirit would work in it and in us, that we may hear and understand and believe and obey. For Christ's sake, amen. You know, one of the problems with technology is that we adopt it before we think about the consequences of it. One handy little piece of technology, this is my phone in case you don't recognize it. It's very small, it's very lovely, it's very useful. I get my emails on it, it's all kinds of problems. Uh, We introduce this technology into American culture, world culture. It's taken off and it's taken over before we really begin to ask the question of if this is a good idea. We thought this is a thing that will connect people all over the world, that will connect each other, and we can do all kinds of things with it, and now we have smartphones with all kinds of apps. And people are starting to kind of finally go, maybe we need to think a little bit more about this. Last month, the University of Cambridge released a new study conducted uh, in cahoots with the British government, their uh, Department of Health Services, basically, looking at what are the consequences of specific apps on their users. How does your relationship with a particular app shape who you are? And they assumed that they would probably get some bad information. They didn't actually realize how bad it would be. And it was a bit shocking to the doctors from the University of Cambridge. First, they found that actually a number of apps have proven to be more addictive than cigarettes and alcohol. Hear that for a moment. More addictive than cigarettes and alcohol. For those of you that ever tried to quit smoking... Think about that for a moment. Or those of you that were raised with an alcoholic nearby, think about that for a moment. To think about the the rise of what would seem like an innocuous app. They found that these results were not just limited to young people, unfortunately. It was spread throughout users and those 65 and above in the room. uh, Statistically, 20% of you will probably struggle with these kind of things. It was intriguing because the more closely they were associated with certain apps, they began to see a series of certain kind of behavior process or consequences that were attached to them. Depression. Massive depression. Loneliness. And they had three apps that they kind of basically said, these are the worst offenders, these are toxic We cannot, under any circumstances, recommend them. Don't say it out loud. Guess in your head what those three apps are. 
Instagram is your number one offender, Snapchat is number two, and Facebook is number three. Weirdly enough, Facebook owns numbers one and three. The kind of highlight of it all, and Instagram was by far like grossly the number one offender. 63% of the people who used the app with great regularity said that they loathed it and it made their life worse. And yet they couldn't stop. And they, I mean, they did all kinds of features like, how does it shape your body image? It's the most toxic thing you can do on a regular basis to shape how you see the human body. And it's weird, there are only a couple of them at all that even came out anything remotely positive, according to the surveys that they said. Weirdly enough, I guess the one that was the most favorable of them all, YouTube. The thing that's not at all relational. The thing that's me watching videos by myself is the thing that's the best for me. In fact, actually, it only had one major strike against it, and that was it consumed so much time that people did not sleep enough. And in fact, actually, I mean, all joking aside, this is one of the major things that they're beginning to see medically as a problem is that so many people spend so much time on their apps and on their phones, they don't sleep enough. And because they don't sleep enough, it fires off all the wrong chemicals in their brains, which then helps them get depressed, which pushes them to their phones more, which means they don't sleep enough, which fires off chemicals in their brains. So they get more depressed. And it's this vicious cycle. YouTube was the only one that came out like any bit remotely positive, And it was barely positive. The amazing thing is, is this study coming out of Cambridge is finding that in our current culture, the things that we're designing to make us more relational are counterproductive. We talk a lot about the millennial generation, and they're fun to talk about, if we're going to be honest. I'm barely out of it, so it's delightful because they're the one right below me. But realistically... Sociologists are beginning to see it's not actually the millennial generation or the next generation or the the irresponsible generation. It's the lonely generation. That's that's a new moniker that's coming out in some parts. There are some even go so far to say it's the loneliest generation in American history, which is weird because they have the most resources to connect them. Massive isolation. The good news is that God speaks to this. In a world in which, honestly, we would look at and go, this is, this is fairly hopeless, honestly. God speaks to it and gives hope in the midst of a hopeless world. And, and the first place we're going to kind of start and think is we're going to start pondering God's mercy. Well, if you think about it, if I'm going to ask you, don't answer, it's rhetorical, just to clarify. How is God merciful to you? Well, the first answer you probably come on is, well, the gospel. Good. That's a good answer. That's right. You should think that's how he's being merciful to you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to die an unjust death, and there on the cross to take the sins of his people upon him so that they would be put as far away as the east is from the west. 
And as if that weren't enough, he would die, fully satisfy the wrath of God. As if that weren't enough, he would then be raised to show victory over death, not just victory over sin. And he would share that generously with his people. That is spectacular. And we should think about that as God's mercy. But what else? And if this were Sunday school and I gave us a chance to think, I assume we'd get another couple of hands and answers that we could kind of largely say consequences of the gospel. That I can be filled with joy. Yay! That we can have forgiveness for one another. That we can be kind and that we can have hope and consequences of the work of Christ. Good. All good. That's right. Maybe if we worked a little harder, we would even get to the point where we would say, well, God has common mercies that are given to all people. And I'm I'm assuming this fits. You got rain at your house, most likely. We did at ours last night. That's a common mercy that God gives to his people, that all of his creatures, he provides um, life and breath and energy and zeal. He, He doesn't just give gravity to the church. You realize without gravity, you die instantly. Your body doesn't work right. It's fatal to not have gravity. It's not like you get converted and suddenly you have gravity that sustains you. No, he gives gravity to all of his creatures. And it's the same and it's fair and it's right and it's good because he's generous and merciful. And then if we were really to get theological, we would say, well, you know what? One of his great mercies is that he gives knowledge of himself. And suddenly we're getting a lot closer to where we're going to be today. You see, that's actually a large part of the book of Proverbs. It's teaching us who God is. And then if we were going to work maybe even a little bit harder, we would come to have a good answer of saying one of the ways he's merciful to us is that he gives us knowledge of his world and how we're supposed to live in it. And you know what? Those last two answers combine to be exactly where we're at. At least how this sermon's going to handle it. Proverbs 17 is how we're going to look at it and deal with it. Uh, A combination of God's mercy in showing who He is and His mercy in showing how the world operates and His mercy in showing how we're supposed to live. And just on the surface, we get that. It's about wisdom. God is wisdom. It describes the world accurately for those of you that have either been raised in large families or have existed with small children. Please tell me you cannot confirm verse one with your own experience. It is better to eat a sleeve of crackers with no water than it is to exist in a house with arguing siblings. Some parents are remembering those car trips with the children driving across country and the foolishness and argumentation that was conducted in the back seat. God tells us about his world and we're able to understand it because he is merciful to us. But even more than that is he's teaching us how to live within it. This is not a list of rules of how we live to get saved. We read that abundantly clear, actually, in Romans 3 and in Romans 10. 
This is God's mercy to us to say, hey, you, you want to have a life that's better? These are the ways you're supposed to live. These are for the people of God to honor the Lord in how they serve. And again, recognizing, will we do these things perfectly? Of course not. Not until glory, where we'll do all of them perfectly. But real victory is possible. And I'm going to lovingly suggest this chapter is very providential in that it, I think, is going to actually deal with an issue that is going to be extremely important to this body particularly and as we grow in the future. We're going to look at kind of two parts. First part here is God has designed for his people to be constantly involved in wholesome relationships. You want to know who God is and who the, what the world is and how we're supposed to live in it. It's God has designed for his people to be constantly involved in wholesome relationships. My introverts are already panicking. And I'm going to lovingly say you have every right to because you should. Now, extroverts, we're going to get at you in a minute. Be patient. Don't check out. Our starting point, though, here again is, as we reflect on this, is actually the very nature of God. God is, in his essence, Trinitarian. And what does that mean? And some of you are like, panic, I don't want to have to figure out how to answer what it means to be Trinitarian. That's why we do the creeds, so that you can just quote them. It means that he is God, one God, in three persons. And it means at his very essence, who God is, is in relationship, in wholesome relationship. Father, Son, and Spirit, mutually loving each other. In fact, actually, if you want to get into kind of brain-stretching theology, we're even going to go so far as to say they're mutually indwelling each other. So that when Christ says, abide in me and I in you, he's actually inviting to a practice that is mirrored on the very essence of the Trinity. That Christ himself abides in the Father and the Father in the Son. The Spirit in Christ and Christ in the Spirit, they indwell each other, all three persons, one God, so that at God's very essence, he is in relationship which is then modeled and reflected immediately in the scriptures that when he creates people in his image, he makes a dude in his image. And what's the thing he says following? Well, it's not good that man be alone. Why? Because alone is the opposite of the Trinity. Hear that again. Alone is the opposite of the Trinity. Because God himself is in relationship. It's defining nature to him. It's part of his essence. So when he makes Adam, he then immediately goes, no, we need to make a compliment. We need to make a relationship. We need to make intimacy so that he in himself may reflect God. So he makes Eve. So that they together may model the Trinity. Now, interestingly, it's not three, it's two. And it's within the context of marriage and friendship and other things. But it's a portrait. 
My college pastor called them sermon, he called uh, marriages, he called them sermons in shoes. Because it was designed to showcase God's character. And we're going to see this here in Proverbs chapter 17. We saw it at the very beginning, right? It's better to eat the sleeve of crackers than to live in a house full of strife. Why? Because we are designed to be creatures in wholesome and intimate relationship with one another. In fact, actually, that's where it goes in verse 3. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is gold uh, is for gold. The Lord tests the heart. Why? The Lord has designed his relationship to be with his people. And so even the way he constructs our interactions is constructed to refine our relationship with him. You remember back in chemistry class, you had the little crucible. It was like the little ceramic little thing, and you held it over the Bunsen burner and tried to burn your lab partner, but not too badly. That was your goal, or maybe sneak out some of the sulfur material so you could make something smell bad in the lab. But you remember that it was designed as part of an equation, part of a, an experiment that was helping you understand the relationship between two things. God here in verse 3 is explaining, look, when you look at creation around you and you look at the difficulty of your day and you look at the physical ailments that God gives you or the sicknesses that come upon you or the person who cuts you off in traffic or the person at the store who yells at you for no reason and hurts your feelings because that wasn't very nice to do, you have to understand he's done all of that as part of the defining element of his relationship with you. It's perfecting you. It's preparing you not simply for holiness, but for him. Or verse 6. Some of you, I'm sure this is your favorite verse in the Bible. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. And the glory of children is their father's. It's saying, look, at the very kind of essence of family life is we are to be in intimacy together and to live in such a way that the old may find joy and delight in the young and the young may find pride and stability and joy in the older. I mean, think about the contrast between grandchildren of the crown of the aged and back in my day, it was this way. I want to lovingly say those are not the same things. One is finding delight in the condition of the person, the grandchildren. I'm going to suggest grandchildren, when they first come out, aren't exactly the wisest of critters. But they're still objects of joy and delight because God has designed for us to be intimate together. In a church setting, this is maybe morphed a little bit differently to say, not grandchildren of the crown of the aged, but maybe to say the young people of the church are the crown of of the gray hairs or blue hairs, depending on which, <laughs> which treatment you use there. And the glory of the children of the church. What if we put our, our the elders or the deacons or the Sunday school teachers or the nursery workers? Those adults that showcase the love of Christ to them. Do you ever think about that? When you serve in the nursery, that's part of what you're doing to our children is you're teaching them about the Trinity. That the body is designed, regardless of age or diversity, to showcase loving kindness to one another. You're instructing them by changing poopy diapers. 
a little bit more meaningful than just hold your nose and do the deed there. It even builds a little bit further in verse 17. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. Wow. And for those that have been through real and genuine adversity, you understand the punch behind this verse. To know that this life is filled with many trials, but part of God's design is for us to never do it alone. That if we are a part of the people of God, we should never, ever have to confront adversity alone. Because we are designed to be creatures of intimacy and relationship. It's a wholesome relationship. It's a a reordering of the world. It's a reordering of relationships. No longer is it about self-seeking. What can I get out of this? It's what can I give to this? No longer is it about what makes me happy. It's about what can I do to make them more holy and in doing so more happy. No longer is it about me profiting from these things. But just like the Trinity, me serving those that I love. And I think it's interesting, even in this chapter, this reordering of relationships, weirdly enough, it doesn't actually even stop on the outside. It actually pushes onto the inside. And God's like, look, it's going to reorder your relationship with your own head. For some of us, that's our worst enemy. Extroverts in the room, this is you. You're fine talking to any stranger. I don't think strangers actually exist for many extroverts. Except for the one in between their ears. They're not terrified of anyone but themselves. Look at the reordering that takes place. Verse 22. Great song connected to this one. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. There's a reordering, a reforming, restructuring, reorganizing, even with inside the person. So that the attitude may be transformed by God's redeeming work. So that they may be reshaped. Verses 27 and 28, he who restrains his words has knowledge. He's able to con- control his tongue somewhat. May not be able to get his vocab words out like I'm choking on right now. But there's a reordering of the relationship with the mouth, the relationship with the mind, and what goes further. Verse 28. I love this one. I I was taught this one as a kid a slightly different way. The way I was taught it was to say, um, better to be quiet and thought a fool than open your mouth and confirm it. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. Uh, I, I would love to use illustrations on this one, but there's no way to really illustrate this one well without hurting somebody's feelings. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that person that we all know, right. that you're like, oh, they're so wise, they're so wise. And after like three or four or five years of friendship, they start talking and you're like, wow, wow, no, not at all. 
It reorders kind of how we interact with ourselves, how we interact with our church, how we interact with our friends, how we interact with our God. God has designed us to be creatures of intimacy, to be creatures of relationship, and the redeeming work of Christ transforms that. If we think our Christianity belongs to ourselves only, we are dead wrong. Likewise, if you think you can make it through your life or should try to make it through your life without being a part of the body of Christ, of sharing life with friends of different stages of life than you, you're doing it wrong. I'm going to go even a little further and say if all your friends are the same age make the same amount of money, do the same kind of work, you probably need to reconsider kind of how you're going about things. We as a session have attempted to take this on and bring this as a part of this church. You hear me say with great regularity, the mission of the church is the gathering and perfecting of the saints. And both elements are key, the gathering, the bringing in, uh, the conversion, the evangelism, the mission, and the perfecting, the sanctifying, the being made ready for heaven sort of things. And then we talk about how we accomplish that is word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. And unfortunately, some of us have uh, unintentionally or maybe intentionally, but maybe a bit carelessly have said, well, I'm all about word. That's important. I need to be taking the supper. Obviously, that's important. Prayer, well, I'm an American, so I don't actually do that. Uh, And fellowship is not important at all. No. It absolutely is. It's imperative. It's essential to the nature of the church because it's one area where we show the world who God is. We interact with each other differently. They need to be able to see the Trinity in us. Now, of course, that's the positive side of it. That's the idealistic side. Again, you big visionaries in the room are like, yeah, go for it. You know, and you're uh, like, you know, details people are like, yeah, but this, but this, but this, but this. You know what? God's there with you. He's going to do the same thing. In the rest of the chapter, we see that wickedness destroys the wholesomeness of these relationships. Wickedness destroys the wholesomeness of these relationships. And again, we we understand that from the pattern, the story of redemption. God, the triune God, creates man and womankind, mankind, creates them in relationship with each other, and creates them in relationship with him perfectly. So that Adam and Eve know each other in holiness, Justice, goodness, and truth, and they know their God the same way. Eve sins, Adam sins. What happens? It falls apart, and you see very quickly the deterioration of these things. Immediately, they start hiding from each other. Again, I find that to be just, it's comedy gold. They sin, and the first thing the guys like is the wife needs to cover up more. That makes, it's just staggering. And then they go hide in the bushes from the God who spoke creation into existence. I mean, it's not like Adam hasn't had 
very personal interaction with this God. It's not like he's fleeing from someone whose voice he's never heard. He knows who he's running from. And then chapters that follow when you see children at odds with each other, and at odds with their parents and at odds with the world and friends turning on each other and the entirety of humanity has relational intimacy destroyed. And this chapter is going to give a whole bunch of different ways in which different evil behaviors, in which these relationships are undermined and undercut. And I'm lovingly going to say we have to be very wary that we don't just go, oh yeah, those exist out there. This is what the bad people do, but I would never fall prey to them. Verse 4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar gives ear to mischievous tongue. I think this is probably a little bit shocking for some of us if we're going to genuinely engage it. Because we would say, oh, yes, I understand. The thing that, de- that, that destroys uh, relationships and destroys intimacy are, intimacy are the wicked words. Verse 4 is like, no, that's not the issue, actually. I mean, it is an issue. Listening is a problem. The one who hears the gossip is just as much of a problem as the one who says the gossip. As this church continues to grow, as we continue to add numbers to our midst, as we continue to increase thy diversity and uh, loveliness of the body here, there's going to be a very real temptation that we begin to talk about people. Because honestly, y'all are so interesting. (laughs) But a danger that we easily and quietly and quickly turn into a body of gossips. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now that the first step of that justification will be, well, I'm not the gossip. I'm just listening. Oh, funny enough, that's exactly what's addressed in verse 4. Verse 5, heartless contempt. The person who mocks the poor, ridicules them. And it's intriguing. There's a, a Jewish um, social scientist kind of out in the West Coast uh, who does a, a kind of a marriage lab where they work through marriages and kind of looking at interacting with each other. And uh, they have, uh, it's crazy, if, if you go in and you and your spouse have a fight in front of them, uh, for something crazy like five minutes, they have like 98% accuracy to predict if you'll divorce in the next 10 years. It's amazing. Uh, if you ever watch the show Lie to Me, that's the guy he's built off of. He's a real dude, um, Jewish guy and, uh, in, I think, Northern California or Oregon. But it's interesting. The thing they look for in divorce is one thing. They look for contempt. It's the only thing they really look for. That's the biggie. They understand it. More than anything else, the thing that kills marriages is contempt. If you entertain contempt to your spouse, it will kill it. And I would say for us in here, to entertain contempt to one another. Verses 7 and 20, lying, untruthfulness. Eight and twenty-three bribery. 
And you think, well, pff, no, that never happens here. I, I actually, crazy story. This week, I, I, I spent time with at least a dozen different PCA pastors this week, so you don't know who it is. Uh, I actually had a guy talk to me this week about, had one of his parishioners bribe him this week, and he was in process of having to return the bribe and figure out all of the legal ramifications of how that was going to work. The crazy part was it was literally so crass as, here is money for this thing. Most of us never, never go quite that crass. What we tend to do is, I will show my favor upon you so that you behave the way I want. I will give you this good thing. Maybe it's my kindness. Maybe I'll put my temper in check so that you do this thing. Wives, watch how you interact with your husbands. Husbands, watch how you interact with your wives. 11 and 12, a a rebellious spirit. 13, base ingratitude. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Those that receive good things and instead of returning generosity, thanksgiving, and kindness, instead they return evil. Well, guess what? Evil will not depart from them. It will reside in them. This is the same kind of language uh, we see all throughout the scriptures where, you know, as you do these evil things, they have terrible consequences that come for you. Verse 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. And letting out water, what does that mean? Picture in your mind, you remember when Katrina came in and hit and all of the, the dikes that were holding the water up? When they broke, do you remember any of those images where a little trickle of water starts in the center, a little bit of a trickle of water, and then about four seconds later, it's just the whole thing is gone. When I was uh, in college, I worked as a landscaper at Calvary Church in Charlotte, you know, the giant, at the time, giant pink palace. And uh, we had a water problem and uh, had dug a giant hole. Thankfully, it was the boss who was digging and not me. He was in the backhoe. And I had climbed down into the hole as he was trying to kind of excavate right around the water main. And uh, with the backhoe, he nicked the top of the water main, which I didn't know. I was standing in the hole. And uh, I, I will remember it for the rest of my life because the hole when I was climbing out of it was about six feet deep, six feet wide, or six feet long and about four feet wide. I mean, it was a it was a big hole. You could drop a coffin in it pretty easily. And I was at the bottom of it. He nicked it as I was coming out. I had said, hey, buddy, I'm going to come out. I was jumping out when he nicked it. By the time I turned around, it was already full. By the time we got the water turned off, the hole was 50 feet across, 50 feet across, and 40 feet deep. Wow. You could drive a school bus into it and not find it. It was amazing because there was a tiny little bit of water that was right on my heels. And by the time I got out of it, it was like gone. I mean, I'm not kidding. You say you could have dropped the car in it. You would never have seen the car. It was gone. It's intriguing using that same kind of image. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. You get those little bit of words, that little bit of goading, that little bit of conflict that doesn't just stay trapped there. It kind of breaks through the dam a little bit. It wears the hole, and then suddenly you have the Grand Canyon of division. Quarreling in verse 19. One more I want to talk about, verse 24. I think this one because it's one that we don't tend to understand when we read it on surface, and because it's so intriguing. 
The discerning, the wise man, sets his faith towards wisdom. He's intentionally pursuing one thing, but the wicked, the fool, his eyes are on the ends of the earth. He's constantly distracted. He's running around willy-nilly, and I would suggest again, how many of us do we feel like our lives, we don't actually know where they're anchored? We know this week's going to be insanely busy. We know we've got 9,000 things to do. But at the end of the week, if we're going to look back at what we're trying to accomplish, it's just all distraction. It's Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Twitter. I think there's a, a, a particular warning here for this body. That we do not fall prey to the way of the fool. That we are intentionally watchful over our mouth, watchful over our actions, watchful over our hearts. That we practice the art of self-examination. To consider how am I the fool who is stirring up conflict, who is not promoting intimate friendship, but instead destroying it. And I give one concluding kind of question, thought along the way. It's been a dream of this church for the last 20 plus years to grow. It has. I mean, we've been small for so long, very small for very long. And now we're in the situation we're about to, Lord willing, build a brick and mortar building. And to think about why actually do we want that growth? is one of the reasons we want that building so that we can have increased friendship, relationship, and intimacy with the people of God. Or are we just going bigger is better? Or maybe bigger is easier? Or maybe bigger is big enough that I can hide? Because I'm going to suggest all three of those latter motives are not okay. But if we're bringing people in that we might increase the joy and love and delight that God has given the people of God, oh, what a good and glorious thing that will be. Let me pray. Father, we honor you. Triune God, Lord of intimate relationship as you are with yourself, forgive us for our isolationism, our loneliness, and the ways in which we actively, maybe unintentionally, Destroy those relationships. Forgive us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.